0: Sometime in the last year, my wife and I watched a, a romantic comedy, and um, you know, I was just real, realizing this morning that we live in Santa Monica, and that I don't know what all of you do, and I don't know what all of your loved ones do, so um, if, if for some reason you or a loved one was involved in this movie, it's not them, it's not you, it's me. I'm just going to talk about one th- particular thing that was irritating about this movie, so it, it has Brooke Shields in it and the guy who plays Wesley in The Princess Bride. And, um, and I'm sure I'm getting some of the details wrong here, but this is sort of how I remember it. There's a scene toward the beginning where Brooke Shields, who is in New York City, is looking at a picture of an old Irish castle that is somehow connected to her family. And you know that this castle is important because she talks about it and also... Castle is in the title of the movie. So we learn also at the beginning that she's going through some kind of a crisis. This is good. This is sort of driving the story forward. I think she's a writer, so maybe it was like writer's block that she was having. Uh, So she's talking about how she needs a change of scenery or, or inspiration. Hmm. I wonder where she could go for a change of scenery, right? I wonder. So in that moment, she turns, and the camera turns with her to look at the picture of the castle. Perfect. We're all with you, movie, right? Nobody is lost. We all know that she needs to go to Scotland. We all know that she needs to go to this castle. But instead of trusting the audience with the obvious, they add in audio of her inner voice saying... I know, I'll go to Scotland. Why? We know. We don't need you to tell us where you're going. Just transition from the picture to you landing in Scotland. Transition from the picture to you standing in front of the castle, right? Don't tell us you're a movie. Just show us. That's sort of what movies are really good at, right? So, you might remember from two weeks ago, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is all about how a king is bad or is a bad idea because God is supposed to be the king. Plus, a human king will oppress and and enslave his own people. And yet, those people say, sounds good. We want a king. Give us a king. So God replies, okay, I'll I'll give you a king, and I'll have the prophet Samuel identify who the king is for you. So then, when we start reading chapter 9 today, the question on all of our minds is who's going to be the king? What person will show up? Who will Samuel find? Maybe the title of the sermon should have been Who's Going to Be King? Because chapter 9 opens and We're all supposed to be on the same page. We're all supposed to be looking for the same thing. We're looking for the new king. Are you with me? (laughs) No, you're not. Are, Are you with me? Okay. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the Israelites more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. All right, so the story opens, and we immediately see that Saul looks like a good candidate for king, at least on the surface. He's rich, he's from a good family, he's good looking, and he's tall. All right, apparently all the things you want for a king. Thankfully, the author trusts us, the readers, enough to avoid saying out loud, I know, maybe this guy will make a good king, right? Like that would just be overtelling. So the story continues in verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, had strayed. So Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the young men with you, go and look for the donkeys." He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Salishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Salim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. Now, it's close to impossible for any of us modern readers, especially those of us disconnected from the Middle East, to notice what is happening with these specific locations that are being described in the story. But you can appreciate at least that the author is showing us something important about Saul. He's showing us something important about Saul. Instead of saying out loud, Saul is good-looking and tall, but he might lead you in circles as your king, the story shows Saul wandering aimlessly looking for a bunch of of donkeys unsuccessfully. Three times they did not find them. They were not there. They did not find them. So, if you're looking for a modern example of this, think about any experience that you've had of shopping at IKEA, right? Like you wander from room to room, losing all sense of direction until you end up at the place you started, right, at the very beginning, and not really sure w- which direction you're supposed to go. With some help, you finally uh, find your, your way to the warehouse, where you once again get lost for something called hemness, which is a dresser, or, or smorgos, which is a, a sandwich, right? So Saul goes northwest, and then southeast, and then north again, and then south again, only to end up where he started off without finding what he's looking for. We are seeing in this story, through actions, through the story, that Saul is a complicated character. He's got strengths, but he's clearly got weaknesses. So then, in verse 5, when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to the young man who was with him, "Let us turn back or or my father will start worrying, will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us." Okay. So on the one hand, Saul is compassionate and he's attentive to what his parents must be going through because they've been gone for so long. But on the other hand, he appears to be someone who gives up quickly. And is willing to shirk his responsibilities. And this will actually play out in, in many other stories that we see about Saul later on. So Saul is a complicated character, and, and perhaps we're starting to wonder, maybe Saul isn't the guy. Maybe this isn't the story or the type of person that we want as king. Or, maybe the author is giving us this experience where, like the people, who want a king no matter what, who are so intent on wanting a king that we're so fixated on him being tall and good-looking that we miss all of these red flags that we're seeing, that Saul isn't really a great leader. So then in verse 6, but the young servant said to Saul, there is a man of God in this town. He is a man held in honor Whatever he says always comes true. Let us go there now. Perhaps he will tell us about the journey on which we have set out. Maybe this prophet can tell us how to get out of this Ikea. Maybe he can show us how we're supposed to put this chair together with this small little wrench. Maybe he can show us where the Swedish meatballs are, right? The suspense is beginning to grow again because we know from the last chapter that it's a prophet. It's the prophet Samuel who's supposed to identify this new king. But we keep reading because it doesn't actually say that it's Samuel. It just says that it's a man of God, just a a generic, run-of-the-mill man of God. And so we're wondering, right? So in verse 14, so they went up to the town, and as they were entering the town, they saw Samuel, finally, 14 verses later, we find out that it is actually Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the shrine. Now, the day before this, before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you will anoint him to be ruler over my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines for i have seen the suffering of my people because their outcry has come before me so this is a little bit of the overtelling that i was talking about because we all know that Saul meeting Samuel we know what it means we know that Samuel will probably anoint Saul to be the first king but What's really important about this part here is that God is a part of driving the story forward. God is a part of this. And we have to remember that the whole idea of a king is a rejection of God. The people are turning away from God in order to follow a king. And yet, God is still there involved in their story. God is still at work among the people even when they've lost their way. And God is still willing to work with this would-be king, even if Saul has his serious limitations, even if Saul still has a lot to learn, even if the people mistake outward appearances for inward character and qualities, God isn't afraid to stick with them, to be known as their God, even if they're wandering off. So, the Christian story, or the way that we've often told the Christian story imagines God as too good to be in the presence of our imperfections. That God is too holy to be close to our sin or to our failures or to our limitations. But that is not what we see happening in the Bible. God doesn't need perfection. God doesn't demand that we always get it right. Jesus is not afraid of our humanity. Jesus is not afraid of our complicated lives or our complicated experiences or our complicated character. God's priority is listening and being attentive to our suffering. God's priority is being attentive to our struggles. God's priority is walking with us, sitting with us, being with us, no matter what. As Peter says to our kids every week, God loves us, God is for us, God is always with us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for walking with us through all of life, amen.